0: I will begin my 28th year as Coach Bill in Bible Bowl, and it's one of the great joys of my life, but one of the things that I find a really good challenge, actually, is putting important theological themes into thoughts and into words that four-year-old kids can understand. Of course, there are some that are older than that. So when I think of my Bible Bowl kids, I think of ways to communicate the character of God, his perfect plans for his children, his love and his mercy and his amazing power. Now, the Bible Bowl closing song for years has been Rich Mullins' song, Awesome God, and it speaks to us as adults and children as well with the chorus of this song, which is the Bible Bowl closing song. Now, uh, since I've been doing Bible Bowl for so long, when I hear that song now, I think of kids dancing around their seats as we close Bible Bowl. But, you know, one of the ways I've described our theme this morning is not with the big theological term, God's sovereignty, but by telling the Bible Bowl kids that our God is large and in charge. He's bigger than we can imagine. Our God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing that our God cannot do, right? You remember that little kid's chorus? One of the things that kids learn early on is who's the boss, who's in charge, right? The boss must be big enough to have his way, he must be powerful enough to do whatever he wants, and he must be smart enough to do what's best. And then again, how many of you parents have heard at least once from your kids, you're not the boss of me? Parents, have we heard that, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And, of course, we set them straight immediately and we say, yes, indeed, I am the boss of you, and you will do what I ask you to do. But if parents are also rightly displaying God's character, they display in their interactions with their children not just raw power, I am the boss of you, but they understand that God isn't just awesome. He is just not big and powerful. He's not just sovereign. But this sovereignty, being large and in charge of everything we experience, everything we see, is always accompanied by his wisdom and his love, not just power. That's why we can trust him. If God was only big and powerful, think about that. If he was only big and powerful, he'd be scary and totally unapproachable. We would cower in fear. He'd be more like Godzilla than God. And while Scripture clearly makes a place for the healthy fear of the Lord, the Word also reveals a loving God who sacrifices for our sake and doesn't just summon His power for the sake of dominating or overpowering His creatures. So I want to think this morning about what Scripture teaches about this awesome God. Now, You may remember just a few weeks ago when Dan Covington was here speaking to us that he explored God's sovereignty in missions. And he led with a key verse that bears repeating this morning from Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases Him. Well, when we learn that God is omnipotent, that is all-powerful and I'm not, we focus on God's ability to do His will anytime, anywhere, anywhere. And we see that to truly trust God, we must truly believe that not only does He love us, not only does He have the wisdom to carry out His plans and purposes perfectly, but He also has the power and the ability because our great God is an omnipotent God. That means He's all-powerful. He's almighty. He's awesome. He's large and in charge. And as Jim Garrett has noted before, He's the only person or thing that we can truly say is awesome. That's a word that gets tossed around a little bit too much anymore. This, uh, this day that I had was awesome. This food that I had was awesome. This vacation that I had was awesome. It's, your vacation may be wonderful, but only God is truly awesome. We have to know and believe in all these three things, these big three attributes that Rich Mullins sang about in Awesome God, his wisdom, power, and love, before we can truly trust God. God's sovereignty includes certainly his omnipotence. If he wasn't omnipotent, if he wasn't all-powerful, he could not be truly and completely sovereign, right? But his sovereignty includes more than just the raw power to do big things. It includes his plans. It includes his purposes. It includes his will. And his eternal purpose is influenced by his love for us his sovereign plans and purposes accomplished by his omnipotent power, known in advance by his omniscience, he knows everything that's going to happen and everything that is happened, they are first and foremost to exhibit his glory with the wonderful side benefit to us of being for our good at the same time. It's to glorify himself, but it's also for our good. Ephesians chapter 7, beginning with verse 10, says, his intent was that now... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we think of sovereignty, we can start with a dictionary definition. That's always a good place to start with some things, right? Sovereign is a monarch, a king, a queen, or other supreme ruler. A sovereign has supreme rank, power, or authority. Uh, Sovereign means supreme, preeminent, indisputable, as in a sovereign right. I have a sovereign right to do this, an indisputable right. Greatest in degree, utmost, or extreme. So as is the case with many of our English words, this dictionary definition is helpful. But it really only scratches the surface of what it means when we explore the scriptural teaching that God is sovereign. Sovereign. For example, when we think of a sovereign ruler of a nation, it cannot include the full understanding of what we mean when we say that God is sovereign. For example, a sovereign ruler is still subject to others in many ways. Maybe no one in his country is powerful enough to challenge him, but rulers of other nations may be. Think of Saddam Hussein, who found out he wasn't all that sovereign. Even the most powerful sovereign nation on earth cannot make any kinds of decisions without at least the acquisition, or I'm sorry, the acquiescence of other nations. Adolf Hitler probably thought he was sovereign. He certainly seemed to be in Germany. He ruled with an iron fist, and if you questioned his decrees, you were risking imprisonment or even death. He had power, but he didn't have wisdom or love. Even Hitler was not truly and completely sovereign because he found out that despite his massive power in his own country, despite his ability to crush those nations immediately around him as he did at the beginning of World War II, when the rest of the world awakened to his situation and decided to gang up on Nazi Germany, Hitler's sovereignty was over. He could no longer do as he pleased. So God's sovereignty is so much more than any earthly sovereignty. Let's look at some additional definitions so we can flesh out this idea because, again, it's a deep and rich subject. By the sovereignty of God, we mean that as creator of all things, visible and invisible, God is the owner of all, that he, therefore, has an absolute right to rule over all. Though this sovereignty is thus universal and absolute, it is the sovereignty of wisdom, holiness, and love. So here's a theologian who recognizes that God's sovereignty includes the fact that he not only created us and owns us, but it also includes his holiness, and it is influenced by his love. Sovereignty of God is the absolute right to do all things according to his own good pleasure. Now let me note, you see some scriptures there. You needn't necessarily write down all these scripture references because they're all listed on the back of your bulletin this morning as well as some other scriptures that I won't be including in this morning's sermon. So this definition emphasizes God's right to do as He pleases, as we saw in the psalm we read just a moment ago. The sovereignty of God is the biblical teaching that God is the source of all creation and that all things come from and depend on God. We see that emphasized in Psalm 24, Verse 1, this definition adds another nuance to God's sovereignty, acknowledging not only that God is the source and creator of all things and also the sustainer of all things, but his purpose is part of the equation of this sovereignty. And then here's uh, another definition of sovereignty, a term used to describe the fact that God is the supreme ruler of everything. God created the world and all that is in it. He sustains the entire created order in existence. He guides the affairs of human beings and nations. He providentially interacts with all that takes place. He works for the good of the world and finally will bring all things to a satisfactory conclusion. Because he is God, he has the absolute right to work his will. Sometimes sovereignty is misunderstood to mean that God forces his will on people, and that we are not free to choose. That is false. God's sovereignty includes the free choices of human beings. What makes God's sovereignty effective is that his will is ultimately done, sometimes along with, sometimes in spite of, our free choices. So think about this. This definition's a more complete look at the things that God's sovereignty, as taught in scripture, includes. It includes the idea of power, and control and providence, as well as God's right to do whatever he wants to. But it also references another very important aspect of God's sovereignty, which only applies to his sovereignty. You could look at all the other quote-unquote sovereigns that we see, and this does not apply to them. That's the ability to take our free choices, our truly free choices, and accomplish his will. Hitler and Saddam's sovereignty forced people to do their will under the threat of harm or even death. But God is different in his sovereignty. This is an admittedly mysterious and amazing power that God has to take our truly free choices, and in some ways that we cannot, in our sin-clouded and finite minds, truly understand, use those truly free choices to accomplish exactly what he sovereignly wills. I don't know about you, that makes me want to fall down on my knees and give glory to God. Because that's an amazing thing. These two things are both taught in Scripture, and we must live with this tension and not try to explain it away one way or the other, but understand that Scripture teaches both. Our free choices have a a real impact on our lives and on human history, but God is still at the same time sovereign. It's important to note that this may not always be what he wants. Some have dealt with this thought by noting that God permits for reasons known only to himself people to sometimes act contrary to and in defiance of some of his revealed will. But he never permits them to act contrary to his sovereign will. There's Actually, even in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek language, there's a difference in the original language to make such distinctions. One word is translated will, and it represents his absolute sovereign will that must be done. The other is more along the lines of what God wishes or desires. For example, God desires that all men would acknowledge him. We see that in scripture. That all would follow the way of salvation made through Jesus. But the scriptures are also clear that that doesn't happen. All do not come to salvation. There will be, at the end of time, a separation of the sheep and the goats. He desires that all people would follow him and obey him wholeheartedly. All we have to do is look around, and we can easily see that that's not happening, right? But what he wills, what he absolutely decides, cannot be thwarted. It cannot be undone. Imagine with me for a minute here. Let's imagine that Evangeline, I'm going to pick on Evangeline, she's a child of God. And let's just imagine also, as we imagine this morning, that John has been promoted from TCF elder to God. Congratulations, John. I want you to know there's no salary bump with this. Evangeline has a precious coin. And let's assume that Evangeline has asked her dad to protect that coin, so she gives it to him for safekeeping. After all, her dad is God. She can trust him, right? Surely she knows he can keep my coin safe. Johnny won't get his hands on it, right? So Evangeline knows her dad has the power to keep it for her. But what if, in this imaginary scenario, Megan takes and sells the coin, along with maybe some of Johnny's Legos? Now, Does that mean that John is not powerful enough to keep the coin safe for Evangeline? Well, in this illustration, what you don't know, unless I tell you, which I'm going to, is that John decided to let Megan sell the coin. It wasn't because he wasn't powerful enough to protect it. If John's sovereign and powerful enough to protect the coin, he can do as he pleases, right? So John's power is tempted by his wisdom to let Megan take that coin, but not Johnny. Your first question might be, well, why? Why? If Evangeline asked him to protect it, isn't John betraying her trust by letting it go? But consider this, for the sake of this illustration, and keeping with our explanation of the fullness of God's sovereignty, The sovereign, omnipotent God, John in this case, also has complete wisdom. He has omniscience. He's all-knowing. He knows what's going to happen. And his love for Evangeline is perfect. Because of this, he knows some things about why it's not in her best interest to have that precious coin. It's not good for her. Now, we could speculate why. Perhaps... He knows that she'll spend it on something destructive. Perhaps he knows her love for John will grow cold because of her riches with this coin. But the bottom line is, whether John tells her why he let it go, and he may choose to never tell Evangeline, regardless, he knows best. He knows best. And he knows that if she keeps the precious coin, her life may go in a direction that's not for her good. Now that's part of God's sovereignty that's hard for us to accept and certainly hard for us to understand when it comes to the difficult situations and the disappointments and even the suffering that we face in this life. But it's also an illustration of a loving Heavenly Father doing what's best for His children. So sovereignty is God's right, it includes his ability to do as he wills. And thanks be to God, his will is always for his glory, and it's always for our good. This is really a good thing if you think about it. Our great God's sovereignty is encompassed by his wisdom. So not only has the ability to, and the power to do as he wills, but he and he alone knows best what to do in any and every circumstance in any and every individual life, in the little things and the big things of life. Now I can look around this room and realize what a hard message this is. As I look around this room and I know so many of the challenges that so many of you are facing, and I realize that this is a tough subject for all of us because life happens, doesn't it? But God's sovereignty isn't just raw power, it's exerted with wisdom, it's shaped and influenced by his love for us who are his children, created in his image for his glory. Now imagine a truly sovereign God who did not also have perfect wisdom, or a truly sovereign God who did not have perfect love for his created things, especially us creatures. He might be in charge, and not know what to do with all that power. Sort of a bumbling God, kind of Barney Fife with absolute power. Or he might not be perfect in love, and thus he would do things that were unloving toward his creation. That's a scary thought. A sovereign God who isn't also wise and all-loving. But God is the author of love. That means he gets to define what is truly loving. And he knows what true love is better than all of us. And again, all three of those attributes of God are critical to our ability to trust him. Without any one of these three holding up our faith in God like a three-legged stool, our faith would crumble and our ability to trust in him would vanish. If he's not sovereign, if he's not infinite in wisdom, if he's not perfect in love, we cannot trust him. In fact, I'd go a step further. We'd be fools to trust a God like that. And also, he's not worthy of our service and our obedience. If one of those things is taken off of that three-legged stool of our faith in God. But here's the good news, my brothers and sisters. He is worthy. He is worthy. Worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our service. He's worthy of our obedience. Our God is an awesome God. And he reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Closely related in the explanation of some, it's almost identical, is what we call the providence of God. This is his continuous activity in human history as he works out His purposes. This happens on the macro level, but it also happens on the micro level. That means individually with you and me. So providence then is the sovereign divine oversight of all things, guiding them toward their divinely predetermined end in a way that is consistent with their created nature. All to the glory and praise of God. So this divine, sovereign, and benevolent control of all things by God is the underlying premise of everything that's taught in Scripture. It's God's faithful and effective care and guidance of the things that he has made toward the end which he has foreordained. J.I. Packer defined providence as the unceasing activity of the Creator whereby in overflowing bounty and goodwill he upholds his creatures in ordered existence, guides and governs all events, circumstances and free acts of angels and men and directs everything to its appointed goal for his own glory. So God's providence or his sovereignty extends to all of creation, but it doesn't end there. It extends to individuals, to each of us. It extends beyond that to governments and rulers, to people groups, to nations. How about to all of nature? even beyond the weather to earthquakes, any natural phenomenon. God is large and in charge of all those things. It's revealed in everything from the broad sweep of history to the most intricate details of our individual lives. Jerry Bridges wrote, Nothing is so small or trivial as to escape the attention of God's sovereign control. Nothing is so great as to be beyond his power to control it. Let's for a moment think of one aspect of this, God's sovereignty over history, the great things of our world. And let's look at this by looking at a ruler named Cyrus. You remember Cyrus? He was the king of Persia. He probably thought he was sovereign, and his rule probably uh, comprised the largest empire the world had seen at that time in history. He's mentioned 22 times in the Bible. That's a lot for a man who the prophet Isaiah Recognized, did not even know God. But Cyrus served God's purposes because God is sovereign. Let me read from Isaiah chapter 45, verses 4 through 6, as God spoke through the prophet Isaiah about Cyrus. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you, again he's speaking to Cyrus, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. So here we see a picture of God's sovereignty. Notice twice in this passage, what does God say? Cyrus doesn't acknowledge him. That means he doesn't know God. He's an unbeliever. He's a pagan. Yet God chooses to use him. Cyrus did not do God's will out of love for God. And notice the purpose of his use of Cyrus, this ruler who didn't follow God. In verse 6, we see this. So that, it's telling us a purpose, right? These things are true, so that, what? From the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know there is none beside me. So God used Cyrus to display his glory, to display his power. God is able to use anything, even pagan rulers, to display his glory. And look at verse 5. God says to Cyrus, I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me. Now, do we think if God would strengthen even a pagan ruler to accomplish his purposes in history, and maybe we put this down on the micro level, maybe God would use a pagan in our lives to accomplish something in our lives, won't he also strengthen us who want and purpose to serve him, to do his will? This is just one of the striking examples of this in Scripture, and there are many more. Why didn't God raise up a godly leader to accomplish his purposes in this case, the deliverance of his people from Babylonian captivity? Why? If he's all-powerful, why didn't he use the same kind of miracles that he used to deliver his chosen people from Egypt? Now, here's something you're not going to hear many preachers say on many pulpits this morning. I don't know. I don't know. He does as he pleases. But in his perfect wisdom... In his infinite love and in his sovereignty, he chose to do it this way. In verse 1 of Isaiah 45, God calls Cyrus his anointed. Wow, that's the same Hebrew word used for Messiah. It's the only place in the Bible where a Gentile is said to be anointed. God is the power over all powers. He's the King of kings, He's the Lord of lords, and He anoints whom He pleases, who He chooses. For his special tasks. We read in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. So we see in this example of Cyrus God's sovereignty at work, accomplishing his eternal purposes in a significant piece of history. But God's sovereignty extends beyond just the big picture of human history. It includes everything about the big picture of time and history. God's sovereignty includes things like elections, like Supreme Court justices. How about COVID? But it also includes the tinier, more intricate details of our individual lives, which after all those are all the things that in the aggregate make up the big picture, right? The opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism. Anybody ever do the Heidelberg Catechism? Everybody ever read that? It's a good document. You ought to read it sometime. But here's the opening question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer. That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, That all things must work together for my salvation. That to me is incredibly comforting, and I believe that it's true. We find many passages in Scripture which clearly teach God's sovereignty or His providential care for His people as a remedy for anxiety about our lives, about our future. How about this familiar one, a little bit of a longer passage, but I want to read it. You'll know it but let's put it into the context of what we're looking at this morning. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? or from suffering. We all know that's not true. The point is that God is intimately involved in our daily lives, and his sovereign involvement in our lives is all we need, and we're encouraged to seek him first in all these things. This is one of the many how-much-more passages we find in Scripture where it compares God's activity in a lesser realm to reveal to us how much more he cares for us, his blood-bought children. So if we doubt God's sovereignty, if we take God off the throne in these intricate, intimate details of our life, how can we explain his care for more simple creation, birds, flowers? How can we explain what we read in Matthew chapter 10 verse 29? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. Nothing happens in our lives apart from the will of our Father. He either causes or allows it to happen and ultimately it's all for our good and for His glory. Then of course we have everybody's favorite passage in times of trouble, right? Most of you could probably quote Romans eight twenty-eight. we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him who have been called according to his purpose why is that everybody's favorite verse because it explains that God's large and in charge and that everything that happens is for our good and for his glory now let's be clear here this doesn't mean that all things are good in and of themselves but ultimately it does mean that nothing can happen to us apart from God's sovereignty he's never surprised nothing ever happens that he doesn't expect and know is going to happen nothing apart from his love and his wisdom at work in our lives and it's always working again for our good and his glory in the most difficult desperate circumstances our sovereign god is working for our good now the problem that we face is that though the word i believe and i hope i've demonstrated at least a little bit this morning clearly says that this is true it doesn't tell us how God does it. And it also often doesn't tell us why he does it the way he chooses to. We get glimpses of it. But because we don't know the how and the why, we struggle, don't we? How can such and such a thing in my life be a good thing? How can Evangeline losing her precious coin be a good thing? But the word does not present a systematic point-by-point answer to some of these kinds of questions. For example, Job Think of Job. He never learned some of the drama that was behind the scenes of his suffering. What did God tell him? I'm God. I'm in charge. I know what I'm doing, and you don't, so trust me. Trust me. God says to us this morning, trust me. That's what I want. I want you to trust me. What we do know is what Paul tells the Romans in chapter 8 again, beginning with verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be liberated. But not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. That the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. patiently because we're sure because we're sure that God is for us and not against us we can learn to trust his sovereignty one circumstance at a time we need an attitude that gives us this eternal perspective we have tunnel vision sometimes in this life don't we all we can see is what's right in front of us and sometimes what we need is the Lord we need the Holy Spirit we need each other to pull those blinders away and say hey here's the big picture there's more than just what's right in front of you here's what god is doing and here's what we can look forward to so we have tunnel vision we don't consider god's larger purpose and things so we struggle it's the big picture that god sees and we sometimes just don't see it's the light of eternity So why is it important for us to review this doctrine of our faith i've heard from this pulpit messages and parts of messages about God's sovereignty. This is, this is the place where I learned about God's sovereignty. I've preached on this theme before myself, so why do this again? Well, first of all, we forget. We get in the middle of life's challenges, and we get that tunnel vision again, and we forget, and we need again these reminders, right? It should strengthen our faith. It should enable us to trust God. It should enable us to rest in His plans and purposes in the midst of the sometimes turmoil of our earthly lives. I think there's another reason that we want to consider and there's the idea of resting in Him. There's the idea of resting in Him. What do we see in uh, Psalm 97, verse 1? Be still and know that I am God. Be still. That's actually Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. There was a story I read about um, uh, a patron of the arts and he solicited uh, painting that he wanted to call rest and he said I want you to think about what does rest look like how would you picture that in a painting so he paid him he sent him away and the first one came back and the painting about rest was a pastoral scene like a like what I'm going to see next week when I go on vacation a beautiful mountain view kind of just sitting there it could be uh, the Grinnell uh, cabin in Minnesota with the woods and the peacefulness and that's, that's what he saw as rest And the second one was a picture of a farmer sitting back with his uh, legs up, kind of relaxing with a big pile of hay next to him. So he had obviously just harvested this hay and he was resting after all his hard work. And the third one, the one that he gave the prize to, was this, it was a picture of turmoil. It was a picture of a waterfall just rushing, everything rushing over the waterfall. And that's what was there. But above that was a branch, and there was a mother chick with her, uh, mother with her chicks, and she was feeding them, and she was just at rest. She was doing her thing. Meanwhile, everything right below her and around her was all tumultuous, and that was all that there was. And that's what he said, this is rest. Because that's life, isn't it, right? Isn't that life? Life happens, my brothers and sisters. There's always turmoil. There's always something to distract our peace. But we can have peace. We can have rest. We can be still and know that he is God because he's sovereign. Because he's sovereign. Because he's large. Because he's in charge. And we can trust him. He is a trustworthy God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clear picture that your word gives us of your sovereignty. And, Father, we thank you that it always encompasses not just the power to do whatever you want, to do whatever you please, but it also encompasses your wisdom and your love. We thank you, Father, that you are all-wise, you are all-knowing. We thank you that you love us perfectly, and we thank you that because you love us perfectly and because you are all-wise, we can trust you, Lord. We can trust that you have the ability to do what you will say, the ability to do what is best for us. And Father, help us to rest in this idea that everything that happens in our lives as we serve you, Lord, is for our good and for your glory. We pray especially that for those of us who are in the midst of challenging, suffering, difficult things, Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to rest in your sovereignty, knowing that you are large and in charge and worthy of our trust. In Jesus' name, amen.